0: Taken together, the analysis of the Danielle Lemieux vaginal swabs and the semen stains from the bedspread prove that Ronald Tremboli engaged in sexual intercourse with Danielle Lemieux. Furthermore, there is no evidence that would suggest the presence of spermatozoa on any of these items from a second male spermatozoa source. Should you have any questions concerning this work, please contact us.
1: casual professionalism of this belies its devastating impact, at least in the moment. These are the final words of a 12-page report sent from Ed Blake and Forensic Science Associates to Attorney Bill Lane's office in 2001. This is from the retest, which as it turned out was literally a retest as Ed Blake simply repeated tests on the same evidence he had kept from the third trial, not testing additional forensic evidence Mark and Lisa had attempted to provide. Remember how Detective Ford kept saying variations of it doesn't really matter in his interview? That's because Ford's interview was conducted in 2003 after the retest results came out. Detective Ford has since passed away. It's damning to read. It is difficult to conceive of any scenario in which this is not conclusive just when you hear these words aloud. It certainly felt that way again in the moment. To Fort Worth Star Telegram reporter Mike Cochran,
2: you have to understand the environment now. So this, when Mike and I and Mark were in Mike Cochran's office and Mike says, Lisa, call Ed Blake and find out what's going on with the test. I was a little hesitant. And he goes, cause it's, he he goes, we should have a a decision. We should have had a decision. We waited waited a long long time. right?" And, uh, so, I go in his living room and I call Ed Blake. And when I get, uh, I ask, I say, "Hey, Ed, it's Lisa." He goes, "Hi, Lisa. How are you?" I said, "I'm good." I said, "Mike's asking me, you know, about the test, and uh, you know when when we will get the results." And Ed says to me, "I just want you to know that if you were my daughter, I would be very proud of you." And you're a Greek hero, and I started to cry. And he said, I should have the results to you in about one to two weeks. And I said, okay, and I hung up the phone.
3: Sounds like it was getting get you up for a Greek tragedy.
2: Right, <laughs> and I went into the office and I started crying, and Mike and Mark were like, what? What are you doing? Like, Mike was so taken back. Why are you crying? He goes, why are you crying? And I said, Ed Blake just called me a Greek hero. It's coming back to be my dad. Yeah. And they said, no, 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 it's not. How do you, how can you say that? And I said, I'm telling you, it's coming back to be my dad.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So Cochrane was pissed, too. But he, I mean, we... everything we went through, everything for two years, Mike was just, he could not believe that Ron Tromboli did this. He just, he wasn't buying it. He said, he knew too. He could, everybody could see. He said, well, this story leads to the defense. I said, well, we, it only leans one way when we start going back and we go through, we reinvestigate, we look at everything. It only leans one way. So the DNA has always been the roadblock.
1: But when I asked Bill Lane, Ronald's defense attorney for the third trial in his office in Fort Worth, this is what he said about the retest.
4: Ed Blake was one of the, I guess, Ed's still alive. He he was one of the finest geneticists that that I ever, I used him on a lot of cases and the state used him on this one. And he he tested it again because not that the, I I don't think the technology had changed that much, but uh, Ed never believed 100% in what he was doing anyway. And he testified as much. He said, don't rely on this. To convict somebody. It's, this is too new. It's all too new you know you need you need something else other than this. And so I think Lisa and the family thought maybe that if he ran it again he'd come up with a different result. I didn't think that he would or that, that Ed would come up with a different result, but he ran it again anyway and uh, wouldn't like it wasn't like it was more more positive than it was the first time it was just he just came up with the same result
1: asked Bill if the passage of time from the third trial in 1989 to the retest in 2001 meant the test Blake used was more accurate or more meaningful.
4: No, not in PCR. Now, I don't know. I don't even know if they're using PCR anymore today, to tell you the truth, because we use STRs. It's all uh, short tandem repeats, and it's just all completely different from what we were doing back then. But But PCR the numbers were much smaller as, as random likelihood. You keep in mind, we're not dealing with just DNA. You're de- dealing with population genetics too. So there's two different tests you're dealing with. One is the DNA to make figure out whether the alleles line up. And the other then is what's the random likelihood of a match. So th- I wrote a couple of papers years ago. I said, it's not the DNA that hurts, it's the numbers.
1: <laughs> so how do we get to those numbers? Now, all this being said, I was as skeptical as you probably are after hearing the retest was again a match, but I kept finding questions I could not easily explain, like the sheet. All this stuff about a match, it's based significantly on forensic material found on a bedspread that was laying to the side of Danielle, but Danielle was on top of a sheet. We know the sheet was certainly taken into evidence as there is a Fort Worth Police Department Crime Laboratory receipt document that identifies the sheet. Given the scrutiny on this case, it would seem obvious the sheet surely was tested, and if it had returned any results that could be tied to Ronald Tromboli, prosecution would have made it a central focus. Clearly, it did not return any results tied to Ronald, as the sheet is bizarrely absent from the discussion in the various trial transcripts. I asked Bill, wouldn't it logically make sense that if Ronald's DNA was anywhere, it would be on the sheet? Well, yeah, they should
4: should have tested all of but I contend that that was not his DNA on the best spread,
1: uh, you know, or on the, uh, anywhere. So Mark and Lisa actually did a Freedom of Information Act request on this issue and discovered the sheets were tested, both by serologist Billy Shumway and sent to the FBI to be tested. And obviously, neither testing uncovered anything that pointed to Ronald Tromboli. Or of course, it would have been Exhibit A for the prosecution.
4: No, I don't think it was his to begin with. So it, it was, I, we didn't take too much of, I think I'm, I'm sure I brought it to the jury's attention of the things that they didn't do. That's just something defense lawyers do. Well, did you test this? No. Did you test this? No. You know, there was issues of cross-contamination back then. There, and there's lots of ways that you can leave your DNA. So you're going to leave DNA all over this table. So if somebody comes in here tonight and murders
1: Naveed. Bill's referring there to his colleague, Naveed, who sat in the room with us in Bill's office where we conducted this interview uh, and you're in the the COTIS profile
4: they're going you're gonna get hit as a hit, as a possible suspect in that case it's, you know you're here you're always shedding hair you're always shedding skin cells so DNA is everywhere so to explain uh, you know why his DNA would have been found now in a semen stain it's a little different but again that's the one who's excluded him on and it, our experts excluded him on it so I would uh, urge your listeners to never just believe a DNA result because there's always, and even the, ex, the good experts admit that it's, it's science and science is always evolving. We may find out something next year that says all of this is hokey, you know? We just don't know. So don't ever rely on this alone. Never make this alone the deciding factor in finding somebody guilty or not because it's just, it's subject to too many problems. And, and they good Ed, Ed testified to that in front of the jury. Don't, don't let this be the end of all, end all. You know, it's just too many problems with it. There was still also the issue of the crime somehow being committed by one person. It was, it was a neighborhood where their houses were, duplexes were built on top of each other. So, and I'm gonna say again, you got three kids with no physical disabilities. uh, How in the world during the day does one person commit all three of those crimes without somebody screaming, hollering? knocking doors down, you know. It just didn't, that that part of it will never
1: make sense to me. And the fact that this incredibly violent crime was committed by someone without a violent history.
4: Ron never fit the bill for that either. He didn't fit the bill for any of this. I mean, he he was not a violent person, didn't have a violent past.
1: Bill Lane's theory said this was all fallout from John Bradley and his professed fear that Dennis Mason would try to kill him the only way that could
4: have happened is more than one person being there. And and I still think it was those friends of John. I think they had made some threats against John, as I recall, and um, I think the girls just got, uh, they were just there at the wrong time. I think they found John there and probably were trying to get the money back, whatever whatever it was, I assumed it was a money deal that that John owed them some money,
1: and it just uh, went south from there. Defending people in cases like this took a toll on Bill, particularly Ron's case. The human cost to me
4: was uh, two heart attacks, <laughs> a saddling pulmonary embolism. I, you know, and I was doing a lot of this stuff back then. I slowed down quite a bit from those days. But back then, I was trying, I tried 16 death penalty cases. Uh, you know, this, the, the toll that to dealing with life and death uh, is, it's pretty hard for a lawyer, it really is. If you do a lot of it, it's really hard, and uh, you know, I got to the point where I just I had to back away for a little while and regenerate myself. But it, it, I'm with the lawyer that you talked to. There's certain cases, just certain cases, that just um, this, this one tucked on my heartstrings the whole time because I didn't think Ron did it.
1: Mark and Lisa hoped the Innocence Project would take up their cause to exonerate Ronald Trimboli, even back when he was still alive.
3: When we first heard about the Innocence Project, and this started in 92, 93, we thought this was perfect. The first thing we did when we heard about that was write them a letter. Ron wrote them a letter. Yeah, Ron's sister wrote them a letter. Lisa and I wrote them a letter. Can't talk with my hands. So we did try to get them involved. And the one thing that they would not do at that time is because DNA was already involved. See, they were working on cases that there was no DNA done. And I understood that to a point. So that was, that kind of, that was a lit down for everybody.
1: There are different innocent projects for different states. To get a perspective on this, I spoke to Justin Brooks, who founded the California Innocence Project. Justin might be just as well known for his work in freeing Brian Banks, a star football player who was falsely accused of rape and spent six years in prison and five years on parole before his conviction was overturned. After his accuser confessed, she made up the whole story. Justin was critical in Brian being exonerated. Greg Kinnear played him in the movie they made about it. (laughs)
5: it was pretty cool. Uh, it was weird. The first screening of it, I'm sitting there and they really worked hard for accuracy. Like I've got a 27 year old black cheap Cherokee. They went out and found one. They took photos in my office and reconstructed everything. Like I've got a grateful dead poster on my wall. They got permission from the grateful dead to reprint it. Uh, and then he's like, where are my clothes? Basically everything I have for my wardrobe, they recreated in the wardrobe department. Um, Fortunately, he's a super nice guy and like was really fun to work with. And he literally came to my office and hung out. He's sitting in my classes. I was getting texts from other professors saying, did I just see Greg Kinnear sitting in the back of your classroom? What's going on? (laughs) My name is Justin Brooks. I am the director and founder of the California Innocence Project. I read in the newspaper one day about a woman on death row in Illinois who had been sentenced to death on a plea bargain and that was fairly surprising for me that someone could get the death penalty on a plea bargain so I went out and I met with her on death row and she told me she was innocent and that conversation changed the entire direction of my life I uh, recruited some law students to start working on the case with me we discovered she was innocent and um, You know, that was kind of the birth of the Innocence Project for me, working uh, with law students on a case of a wrongful conviction. So after her death sentence was reversed, I moved to California and started the California Innocence Project back in 1999 with the, the idea of working with law students on cases of innocent people in prison. And since then, that's what I've been doing and hopefully about to walk my 40th innocent client out of prison. Uh, We receive about 6,000 letters a year. I have a team now of 10 lawyers. I usually have around 20, 25 law students working in my office. I've got 100 volunteer lawyers. and We have a whole um, process for assessing cases. So it starts with the law students uh, getting copies of all the appellate briefs that were filed in it, talking to the client, looking at police reports, and gathering as much evidence as possible. And then a memorandum is put together of whether we think it's a possible case for us. And then a staff attorney will review that. If we think it's got legs, we do presentations twice a week in our office of cases where someone will stand up and they'll present the case. And I have the awful Caesar-like power of thumbs up or thumbs down of whether it proceeds. Most cases don't. Um, Sadly, we have the burden of proof And we have to have compelling evidence of innocence to get a conviction overturned. So at trial, the prosecution has to prove guilt. I've got to prove innocence. And I have seen some very sad cases where the the people very, very well might be innocent, but cases where there's potential forensic evidence. That's why you see a lot of homicide and rape cases reversed, because they have scientific evidence that can prove innocence. Um, we've had a lot of cases we've won with bad identifications done by people who were strangers and only saw someone for a few seconds. And that's actually the topic of the new book that I've written called You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent, as I kind of go through all the causes of wrongful conviction that I've learned about over the past 30 years and how we've gone about litigating those cases.
1: Justin has seen firsthand the drastic advancements in DNA testing from its infancy to today.
5: When I started doing this work, for example, you needed a quarter-sized sample to do a DNA test. So in the majority of cases, they didn't have enough material to do a test. Um, A lot of times they would use up all the material on the first test, so you couldn't check whether it was done validly because there was nothing left to validate it. Now we're at a point where you you can do DNA testing with microscopic amounts of biological material. Um, We also, in the last decade, have been dealing with mitochondrial DNA, which allowed us to do what we couldn't do before, which is, for instance, do DNA testing on hair without the root of the hair. And that was a game changer because lots of times people have hair on clothing. But in the old days, unless you had the root of the hair, you couldn't do testing on that. So we see these advances in technology all the time and the quality control improving all the time.
1: But like Bill Lane, Justin is quick to warn against over-reliance on DNA.
5: Because however good DNA testing is, I always say it's only as good as the people who gather the evidence, the people who do the testing, and the people who read the results. There's still a human element to all of these things where mistakes can happen. You know, DNA testing, again, is only as good as the people who are doing it and the quality of the lab. And so there's been huge changes. And then there's been all kinds of lab scandals Uh, I mean, you had the Fred Zane, the West Virginia DNA analyst who may have fabricated hundreds of DNA testing results. He had a reputation as being the best analyst around because he always got a result because he often just made up the result. And he ended up fleeing the country and he died in a motel in Mexico. Um, And they had to go back in and look at every case he'd worked on because there was so much of a scandal. We have we have the ongoing Boston crime lab scandal where I think as many as 10,000 cases may be reversed because the analysts actually weren't doing any testing. They were just writing up the results consistent with the police reports. So uh, our country is certainly no stranger to lab fraud, all kinds of crazy stuff going on. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's this. Science itself can be good, but the scientists aren't always good and the, the machines aren't always good and the potential of contamination is really good. Uh, I always use the example for contamination in DNA cases, a simple example of how it's very hard later on to even figure out what went wrong, of what happens sometimes in small towns when a police officer gets called for a rape is he might go to the house of the victim and the victim fill out a report that they were raped and then the officer will say okay give me your clothes that you had because we're going to get them tested he takes the clothes he throws them in the back seat of his squad car and then he goes and picks up the suspect and puts the suspect in the back of the squad car and now the suspect sneezes or something but his dna ends up on those clothes pretty hard to reconstruct that later on as to how that went down and If it never goes to trial, whereas, let's say, a DNA test comes back, the guy says, I never even saw that girl before. And they're like, you got to be kidding me. Your DNA is all over the clothes. And now the defense lawyer is telling them to plead out. Um, That case may never see the light of day. And that person also may never see the light of day again. And it's just so hard in the chain of custody. And, And again, as a defense attorney, how do you find that out? I could literally sit at my desk and spin a thousand ways that it can go wrong and end up having someone's DNA on clothing where it shouldn't be. When the police, like other human beings, get a concept in their head, they just look for stuff that now validates that. It's the same reason why everybody on social media is getting you know, political messages from the left or the right. Um, whatever they figure out is gonna be something that you're more interested in, and we're all looking for confirmation of things we already believe. So it is absolutely human nature, and it doesn't take a rogue detective or an evil person to fall into that. It's just literally human nature to look for confirmation of things you already believe. And that happens also, not just with police, but with scientists. And I've got a few examples in my book of where scientists had these prior beliefs and could not set them aside. Um, and one of the examples is There was a very famous case involved for the Madrid bombing, and they got the wrong guy. These fingerprint experts said it matched this guy, and it wasn't that guy, and it ended up he was totally innocent. And so they did this study where they gave a bunch of fingerprint experts what they told them were the fingerprints from the Madrid bombing, because every fingerprint expert would know that those were inaccurate. Four out of five of those experts came back and said, yeah, this isn't a match, because they knew it wasn't a match. And then they said, actually, we've got a surprise for you. Those weren't from the Madrid bombing. Those were from a case that you testified there was a match. And each one had been given fingerprints from their own prior cases. So these are experts in fields. Now, you know, bring that down to a police officer who has a suspect in mind. They're looking for everything that will confirm that. And they're missing the stuff that's not confirming it. And that's why when I train criminal defense attorneys on investigation, I say you can't rely on the people the police talk to in their police reports because often they put in the police reports everybody who says stuff that confirms what they think. You need to go find your own investigation and find the witnesses that have contrary evidence and the things that might counter that and do your own investigation. Otherwise, you're just operating within an investigation that already had these assumptions that your client was guilty and again we all do this every day and if we pay attention to it and are honest about it we're always looking for confirmation to make us feel better about what we think and confirm our beliefs you know we have these standards that we talk about all the time and they're in all movies and tv that prosecution must prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt ladies and gentlemen to convict And we tell this to 12 people sitting in a box. Now those 12 people have spent their whole lives making decisions in one way. I think so. (laughs) That's what they do. Like, I think this, I think that, I don't think this, I don't think that. And then all of a sudden we're expecting that they turn into some kinds of robots that are now going to suddenly say, you know what, I think this guy is guilty. But did they prove it beyond a reasonable doubt? Now, there might be some people who are incredibly thoughtful, who will completely disregard what they believe and say, I really believe they're guilty, but I don't think they proved it beyond a reasonable doubt. But the expectation that that's what's happening in every jury in the United States is crazy. So everything to do with your client as a defense attorney in that courtroom impacts that decision, how they dress. Where they, I, I tell, I used to tell clients, do not smile, do not laugh, ever, because we're, when you sit in a courtroom for weeks on end in a murder trial, the judge will say some stupid joke about the Padres or something, and, and you'll just like chuckle or smile at it. I'll, say, I'll guarantee you that's the picture that's going to be on the front page of the newspaper. That's what that jury's going to see. And they're going to think, how could anybody facing a homicide charge be laughing? And you're dead in the water. Um, Things like whenever I stand up in a courtroom, I put my hands on my shoulders of my client. I want to show to the jury my client's not a monster. They're not someone I'm afraid of. I'm communicating with them that way. There's all this body language that goes on and communication it's 12 people making a decision. The idea that everything doesn't impact that is crazy. Everything that happens in that courtroom impacts that. And that's why often people are wrongly convicted. And that's why also sometimes people are acquitted who are guilty. Because you can, you, you, you're painting a picture, you're telling a story. You're, it's just, it's not a, a, a it's not a scientific process. It's human beings making decisions, and we have a lot of frailties, so we make mistakes.
1: Justin's job gives him unique insight into the domino effect on clients and families in cases of wrongful conviction.
5: Yeah, it's horrible what I've seen my clients go through when they're falsely convicted of murder, particularly rape cases, child molestation, um, of how it completely devastates them their families, their children, their friends, sometimes the community. Even clients that I've exonerated have told me they've gone back into their communities there's still those people who think, yeah, maybe you did it. Uh, I'm not so sure this person is innocent. You know, I I get asked often of what is it like to be wrongfully convicted? I just say, I really don't know. I've never spent a night in jail. I've never experienced it. Personally, but I've been near it for 30 years and I've witnessed it for 30 years and I've seen the hollowness um, and the loss in my client's eyes, um, even even when we exonerate them. But there's something about being guilty in prison that allows you to have an acceptance of it, of like, okay, I did this crime and now I'm going to do my time for it and my family's going to understand that I made a mistake and I'm going to try to get them to, to you know, feel okay about it and that I'm just going to do my time. But like when you're in prison and you're innocent, it is a surrealistic nightmare that you wake up in every day, that you don't belong there and your family shares that. And so it's much, much more psychologically damaging and much more difficult for these families.
1: In Mark and Lisa's minds, after the retest results came in, they were living in that nightmare. Hey, listeners, I hope you're enjoying In the Blood. I want to encourage you to stay tuned at the end of this episode, where I'm going to tell you about another show that we produced that was also a true crime that also took place in 1985 in Texas. It's a very different crime, uh, but it's also one of the most incredible true crime stories I've ever heard. Stay tuned at the end of this episode to hear about our other true crime series, Borderline. Lisa.
3: Lisa. After the results came out, it's public out there for everybody to see. She buries herself on the couch for two weeks, you know, and I understand that too. And another incident with all the shit we have piled up, you know, and then it came to the point where if my dad's innocent, the answer has to be here in this pile of shit, right? You know, the, everything we've accumulated. Because during the uh, Star-Telegram story, we accumulated uh, Joyner's entire files. We got Mallory's files. Mike gave us everything.
1: Joyner was one of Ronald's defense attorneys. He and Carl Mallory were Ronald's defense attorneys prior to Bill Lane.
3: Mike gave us everything they gave him. He gave it to Lisa. Everything, all, his, some- all of his interviews, all this. So Lisa gets to the point where, again, She points at this big pile of boxes, and she knocks it over, and she says, if my dad was innocent, the answer has to be here, and it was. That's when I started, back from the beginning. I tracked that physical evidence from the very beginning all the way to the end, and that's when I got the answer. Every single thing, uh, Dan, that we go on from here on out is From documented proof, everything, we don't steer off the course of anything. We bring it a nine-month chain of custody gap from the time the second trial was over before they sent the evidence, the rape kit off, to be tested. Nobody knows where that was.
1: What Mark's referring to are three specific documents. On August 31st, 1987, a Crime Lab Receipt, shows serologist Billy Shumway of the Fort Worth Police Department released the sexual assault kits and medical examiner samples for the case to prosecutor Bob Gill. This was just before the second trial. The second trial concluded in September of 1987. Approximately nine months later, on May 3, 1988, a crime lab evidence transmittal report, again for the Fort Worth Police Department, shows the sexual assault kits and other evidence returned. Also on May 3rd, 1988, a crime lab examinations document notes this evidence was received back and there's a handwritten, difficult to read note at the bottom right, which says that, regarding Danielle's sexual assault kit, my seals broken. On May 6th of 1988, Ronald was taken to the crime lab to have two tubes of blood drawn for the purpose of DNA testing. Forensic evidence would go out of the crime lab again shortly afterwards, on May 9th of 1988. Bob Gill would testify that in May of 1988, Billy Shumway, at my request, placed all the items we wanted shipped in an envelope, sealed the envelope, sealed them in a box, sealed the box up, sealed the box inside a Federal Express envelope, and released it to me and under my account to have it shipped to Dr. Blake. Bob would further add that he left the crime lab with his office boy and the evidence, and the evidence was directly placed in the Federal Express mailbox by his office boy. That was the term he used in trial transcripts. It seemed a little odd to me for a prosecutor to be directly handling evidence in a case he was prosecuting in this fashion. So I asked Ronald's defense attorney, Bill Lane, if that was a normal thing to do.
4: Uh, I've made a career out of making sure in every case, I always call the prosecutor to stand for something. <laughs> and Bob drew the short straw on that. They, they, they don't do that so much anymore, but back then prosecutors had a habit of going to the crime lab and opening up the evidence and being in the chain of custody. And it's just not a good idea.
1: I also asked Justin Brooks about this, and he replied via email, I don't know how common it was, but prosecutors and defense attorneys should always avoid having evidence in their custody to avoid allegations of tampering and contamination. The third trial began in March of 1989.
3: To Billy Shumway, she tested less than 24 hours after you know, they were found, that she tested one and a half of uh, the vaginal swabs from Danielle, and it was negative for sperm. All were negative, everything was negative. The swabs were all negative.
1: Mark's comments here are simplified versus the nuance of the rape kit results. Three vaginal smears were negative for the presence of semen, but several slides noted possible spermatozoa heads in numbers from three to four to 12 to 14. Two vaginal swabs were weak positives for the presence of sperm. Why Mark would categorize these results as negative, will make a lot more sense in a few minutes, because in situations where someone ejaculates, the amount of sperm is enormous.
3: How this whole thing got started when Shumwei said that, semen was detected on the vaginal swab. No sperm cells, semen is the fluid. Sperm cells is where DNA comes from, the cells themselves, semen, she said semen was detected because the P30 antigen
2: was detected. was
3: detected, which is semen specific, but it could be there for any amount of time from a prior sexual It can be 24 to
2: 48 hours, up to, up to 72, 72
3: hours. is just the antigen.
1: Now, to be fair, A study published in 2007 by the Journal of Forensic Sciences says that in cases where there is an absence of spermatozoa in rape victims, while there is much less DNA to be analyzed, in a study of 105 men with vasectomies, DNA extraction and amplification was possible in all sperm samples, even in the absence of spermatozoa. In Ed Blake's case, though, it appears he was able to find and amplify at least some sperm cells.
3: Sperm cells is what indicates that there was a sexual assault. Sperm cells. And there has to be thousands upon thousands of them. And when she tested the bedspread, there was nothing on the on the stains but the P30 antigen. There was, on one or two, there were like 11 or 12 possible sperm cells. Billy Shumway, specifically on a phone call with her, she wouldn't tell us much without the uh, prosecutors, without Alan Levy's permission. But she said, "Let me tell you this: you cannot get a DNA test from P thirty antigen, and that's what she found on the bedspread." Just to give you a a little example, Elizabeth Taylor, uh, Elizabeth Johnson, who was the
2: whistleblower whistleblower
3: for the Houston Crime Lab and worked for Mark Taylor in California DNA, she was. Some paperwork she had from a case that the, the guy they were trying to say this guy raped this woman and they found like fifteen thousand sperm cells on a, a jacket, right? And she said that that doesn't constitute a sexual assault. Fifteen there's as much as five billion sperm cells and one drop of semen. Five million sperm cells and one drop of semen. And when they sent it to life codes prior to it being gone from the crime lab for nine months they could find nothing on the bedspread swatches. you have to have a minimum to get a RFLP test like back Life then. codes did back then you have to have a minimum of 300,000 sperm cells to get a result
2: And she couldn't even find nine. she couldn't
3: even, she couldn't find hardly any you know, sperm cells. All she could find was what she thought could have been sperm cell. And, and doctors and scientists we always talk to said, it's either a sperm cell or it's not.
1: Indeed, in the case Mark and Lisa are referring to, forensic scientist Elizabeth Johnson, based on her experience in over 100 sexual assault cases, wrote that she examined a vaginal swab and detected 1,100 total spermatozoa, a number that could be found in 1 7,000th of a drop of seminal fluid from an ejaculate. In that case, Elizabeth Johnson said, the very low number was more consistent with intercourse hours or days prior to death.
3: You know, so if they, if Danielle Lemieux was sexually assaulted at the time of her murder, there would have been thousands upon thousands of sperm cells on her, vag- on her vaginal swab, on the sheet, on the bedspread, wherever, but there was There was never any until after, until after it showed up after nine months of being gone, then all of a sudden there's shit on it. And I also have documentation in 1985 of Ron talking to neighbors. You know, yeah, they're asking me for hair samples. They're asking me for this. They're asking me for a semen sample. The court order was asking for a blood sample, a semen sample.
1: It was also odd that witness for the state, Kevin Meckelfresh, Assistant Director of Life Codes, testified that specifically in analysis of the bedspread stains, they detected no epithelial DNA. According to the academic journal, Molecular Diagnostics, forensic samples, such as those from sexual assault kits, may contain male sperm cells mixed with male and female epithelial cells. In the third trial, Edward Blake was asked, so with regards to a sexual assault case, Are epithelial cells something you might expect to find, along with the semen, if the semen were deposited on an object? He replied, I'd say certainly greater than 95% of semen stains are mixed with vaginal material. Also worth noting is that Ronald was actually never convicted of sexual assault. Despite all the implications of that swirling around the case, what he actually was convicted of was the murders only. Ultimately, what I kept coming back to was this. To believe Ronald Trimboli committed this crime, you have to believe his wife, DC, not only lied at the time, but kept up the lie for nearly 40 years, all the way to me asking her about it this year for this podcast. And not only the DC lie, but also that the multiple witnesses who saw the girls alive into the afternoon and even evening, as reported by the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, were also lying.
3: Everybody saw Ron at home that morning of the murders. Several people saw Danielle later in the afternoon, but later that evening, it was he was sitting in his chair. They were watching. I think BC always said they were watching All in the Family, which come, I guess came on right after the news. And the fire trucks and the ambulances were flying down Miguel Lane. Chad looks out the window. Ron's sitting in his chair. They called it the, his Archie bunker chair. Chad is ron's stepson chad looks out the window as the as the sirens are going and the lights are flashing and it's going down to the end of the block chad says they're all you know the ambulance and the fire trucks are down at the end of the cul-de-sac so ron gets up and they him and chad they all walk down there to see what's going on
1: you have to also believe that evidence suggesting two knives were used presented in both the second and third trials was wrong You'd have to look past Ronald's lack of criminal history, lack of violent past, and lack of obvious motive. You'd have to believe that Ronald was foolish enough, if he did commit these murders, to voluntarily submit to a DNA test his lawyer explicitly told him would convict him if he committed the crime. You'd have to discard two alternate suspects with motive, means, and opportunity, as we presented earlier.
2: Then it came down to not just my father, it, it's not just about my father. You have three victims here who are not getting justice, who didn't deserve to be murdered in the way that they were murdered. And the evidence and doesn't say that Ron Chamboli picked up a knife and stabbed him. The evidence doesn't say he tied them up. The evidence doesn't say any of that. There's nothing to prove that he did any of that. And they deserve justice just as much as my father does. And they should get justice just as much as any other victim.
3: The first posthumous exoneration in Texas was Timothy Cole. We eventually hope to make Trimboli the second, but it's still possible.
1: On the other hand, sometimes it's not that complicated. Sometimes, everyone in the justice system thinks someone is guilty because they are guilty. And just because Ronald doesn't seem like the kind of person who would do this doesn't mean he didn't do it.
5: Um, I have been wrong in the past where... I've said, you know, it doesn't, this doesn't look like the kind of guy who'd do something like this. And then we do all the testing and go through it all. And it's like, yeah, actually this does confirm they did that. But it's certainly part of the package of assessing the case that it is less likely that someone who has no history of violence is gonna suddenly, out of the blue, start acting out in a violent way.
1: The documentation Mark and Lisa have unearthed pokes notable holes in the Ed Blake results raising questions about chain of custody and seeming inconsistencies in the forensic details that certainly merit evaluation. But it's not a smoking gun, nor could it be. It's impossible to prove Ronald Trimboli didn't commit this crime short of proving someone else did. It is obviously possible that Ronald Trimboli was guilty of this crime. There just seemed to also be a lot of reasons to doubt he did it. The circumstantial evidence was never that strong in this case which is why the second trial ended in a hung jury. And on a basic human gut level, just common sense of knowing human beings, it's tough to see how or why Ron would have done this. The question then becomes, is it reasonable to doubt the forensic evidence? You've heard on this episode, documented evidence indicating some clear inconsistencies, as well as case studies from Justin Brooks of how this sort of evidence can, under certain circumstances, be problematic. Considering everything else, all the other evidence casting doubt on Ronald being the killer, does it then become reasonable to question if there could have been an issue in the forensic evidence and the testing of it? Is it possible that something, somehow, that we'll probably never know went wrong in the forensic process? Dennis Mason, the alternate suspect who seemed to have the strongest motive, evidence suggesting he was a suspect and violent history, died in 2004. For me, in my heart of hearts, knowing everything I know, after spending months and months learning everything I could, I have come to my own conclusion. But this podcast isn't about me. It doesn't matter what I think.
0: It's about you. What do you believe? Was Ronald Tromboli everyone's worst nightmare? A sadistic murderer of children living just a few doors down in a suburban neighborhood? Or was he the victim of incredibly bad luck, his own somewhat checkered past, his tendency to talk himself into trouble, and a lack of investigation into other suspects? Was he an all-time hard-luck case, a tragic story of an innocent man taken down once he got in the crosshairs of the justice system? Or was he simply a killer? We've given you the facts. What is your verdict? If you've listened this far, you must have an opinion. We want to hear it. Write a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening, and tell us what you think. This has been In the Blood. Thank you for listening. In the Blood is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced by Nat Mundell, Robert Midas, Caitlin Brown, and Dan Benamore. Lead reported and written by Dan Benamore. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by John Higgins. Original music by Darlis Gonzalez. Hosted by Ben McKenzie. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening. And subscribe now for future episodes.
1: Hey, listeners. I hope you enjoyed In the Blood. I wanted to tell you about another true crime story podcast that we produced, where the crime also took place in 1985 in Texas. What happened in 1985 in Texas is that a woman stepped outside of her home and was abducted, raped, and held hostage until she managed to escape her assailant. He would ultimately be captured on the border between the United States and Mexico and jailed in Mexico, where three unknown armed men would later kidnap him from a Mexican jail and bring him back to Texas, where he was found in a park in his underwear by Texas law enforcement. It's an incredible true story of a terrible crime that became an international incident as well as a remarkable portrait of courage and an unexpected spiritual awakening on the part of the survivor. The show is hosted by Padgett Brewster from Criminal Minds. If you enjoyed In the Blood, I definitely think you'll enjoy Borderline. Look for Borderline from Voyage Media anywhere you listen to podcasts.